scripture. It comes from Jeremiah 29, and it's verses 4 through 9, and it can be found on page 425 in the blue, in the blue Bibles in front of you. So feel free to turn with me. <laughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in, into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. All right. Hey, welcome. Good to have you guys here. My name is Brandon. I am the founding and lead pastor here at SOMA. Uh, thanks for being here on a holiday weekend. I feel like uh, these weekends, it's leaders who feel obligated because they feel bad for the staff, and so they're like, I gotta go to church to support the pastors. Uh, and then the rest of us who are lame and don't own lake houses, uh, or weren't invited to a wedding, or aren't some, on some kind of great honeymoon, or trapped here. Uh, so we're gonna make the best of it. We're doing what hopefully we should be doing, gathering and celebrating the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus together. So we are, if you're new, um, transitioning series here, so every week, uh, our practice is to get up after we pray for the city and to uh, teach from God's word and to um, just kind of talk about what it looks like to be a people that are shaped by the word of God, who don't stand over God's word as judges, but stand under it as recipients, um, seeking to align our lives with, with the scriptures, which are really just a revelation of God's heart and his desires for human flourishing. So we've been in a series for the last several weeks on power, right? Lots of people talking about power right now. I want to encourage you to go back if you haven't been here with us. Um, we've been talking about what it looks like to, um, to step into something we call redirection, right? To acknowledge that power is a gift of God that's given to human beings who are created in the image of a God who is himself powerful. To acknowledge that that power can be distorted and can be used for self-interested purposes, right? We talked about the distortion of power, um, how we as leaders think about holding our power in service of others. Um, last week, Pastor Josh talked about how to work within it, broken institutions, and so we talked about the intersection of, of power and institutions from the book of Daniel. Um, and then this week, we're going to wrap it up really just casting vision, and, and this is, I guess, what you call a bridge sermon into next week. So a little bit of, um, we're going to be here in Jeremiah 29. I want to set up kind of the, the broader context of Jeremiah for our time here uh, and then I want to look forward um, to the next series as we think about this fall. This will frame up um, really the entire fall in a vision series we're going to be doing on the kind of church that we believe that God has called us to be, to live in a kind of prophetic tension of the moment which we find ourselves in. And so we're titling today's sermon, Becoming a Creative Minority. What would it look like for us to have a vision for becoming a creative uh, minority? So for those of you who are over 50 in the room, um, you're going to resonate with the first half of the sermon. I'm going to try to name something that you've probably been feeling and experiencing for the last couple decades. So all six of you in the room, we're glad that you're here. 
Um, and I want you to understand uh, where we live and, and um, hopefully be able to name something because there's, there's a shift that's happened that maybe for some of us, depending on where you find yourself right now, feels like bad news. The world in which we live is changing. It's shifting. It seems to be shifting right underneath our feet. And so I want to name something that many boomers and probably builders, uh, the great generations before us, um, from a religious standpoint, have probably been feeling for some time, maybe unable to articulate it, but definitely seeing the signs and reading the tea leaves. And I want to talk about this through the, uh, because I think it's important that we all understand where we've come from. Uh, for younger people, I think sometimes we experience the world a certain way, and we don't understand why our parents are freaking out about everything. Okay, so I'm 38, so I'm right in the middle, right? A lot of you are under 20, or under 38 in your 20s. Some of you are uh, beyond me in wisdom and experience and courage and life and love. Um, but I was having, to, this is kind of uh, just endemic of where we are. I was having lunch with a guy last week who's a couple years older than me, and he said, is, is it just me, or does it feel like our parents have lost their minds? Like, and there's nobody to guide. Some sociologists would call this the sibling society feeling, that we feel like we have no elders. And like, particularly if you live in Broderpool, um, and you're looking around and you're looking for guides. Like, who's going to show us what it looks like to live faithfully in the moment that we live in? And like, again, like no greater evidence than just like, your, like our parents' Facebook pages. It's just like, uh, it's embarrassing, and many of you have blocked them, you know, without telling them and muted them, and you know how to do that. Uh, if you're, if you're older, you know, older than 50, that, that is a thing. Um, and, but, I, but I do want to draw attention to this because it, it has framed up how we think about uh, church, how we think about life, how we think about work, and it really touches everything. So the, the, there's bad news for some of us because we feel like the world has just suddenly changed, and we don't recognize the place that we live. Uh, and th- there's been a transition happening for some time. So let me just take a few minutes to explain. I want to try to condense hundreds of years of, of history uh, and really decades, though, and kind of focus on per- post-World War II realities, because there has been a transition. It's been happening uh, on college campuses and in academia and philosophy really for a long time, but it's picked up speed on the ground, so to speak, over the last several decades coming out of the 50s and 60s. There's a transition to what we would call a post-Christian culture, right, that is in full effect. It's, it's a transition from what some have called the age of Christendom to what others have called the age of authenticity. And so it's, it's really what you're feeling. And, and there's, a, there's a sociologist who really helped me understand this um, through this framework of three cultures. A guy is a Jewish uh, sociologist named Philip Reif, and he talks about three eras of culture that we've experienced. So I'll put these up on the screen. Um, and then you can kind of look at Western civilization uh, and, and Christianity through this lens. I think it's really helpful. So first culture is kind of the pre-Christian world, right? This is before uh, Judaism and Christianity really became kind of a dominant force in the West. This is a worldview that says all of life is charged with the supernatural, right? And so there are gods of rivers and there are gods of animals and animal spirits. And, and really the goal in life was to appease those gods and try to manipulate those gods through cultic practices to earn their favor and try to, you know, avoid them killing you, right? This is kind of the world we know uh, prior to the birth of Christianity uh, several um, centuries ago in the way that we kind of think of it in the West. So that gave way then to what Reef calls the second culture. The second culture is the Judeo-Christian culture that many of us have This is what's been called Christendom. Um, it really started a long time ago, but um, got mainstream with the Edict of Milan. So the power dynamic shifted in, uh, I think it was 331, when the Emperor Constantine 
uh, issued this edict that said basically all violent resistance to Christians must stop. And a large portion of the Roman Empire converted at least uh, in name to Christianity. And Christianity went from being this little persecuted minority to now being culture majority. So in just a few centuries, think about that. Christianity goes from Nero uh, decapitating and taking people's bodies, putting tar on them, putting them on, uh, on sticks and lighting them with pitch and fire around his courtyard to now Christianity being more than 50% of the Roman Empire just in a few centuries. So massive, massive change. So there's this Judeo-Christian, I'll call it a moral vision that frames up philosophy and ethics and, and how people live in the world. Uh, there's this idea that now from second culture that the world is orderly, right? That there's a, a personal God who orders the universe. There's not many gods or polytheism. There's one God, monotheism. And the real goal of life then becomes to conform our lives through faithful worship, to submit our lives, surrender our lives to this one true God. So this is kind of the stream from which we get Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam and other religions like them. That basically was the dominant moral vision. Again, uh, think about America. America was never a Christian nation. So I don't want to say like this is, we're a Christian nation. There's certainly a lot of Christians that have influenced and shaped. But the Judeo-Christian moral vision or social ethic has definitely framed up how we think about what's right and what's wrong and how we live uh, in the West. And then the last couple centuries, really starting with the Enlightenment and Romanticism, there was a shift to the third culture, which is what we call post-Christian culture, so many of us call post-Christian culture. And this culture really um, was all about deconstructing second culture, right? It was all about tearing down kind of the Judeo-Christian framework. But here's the interesting thing. This, this project wants to continue the work of Christendom. Um, as one author said, they want the kingdom without a king, they want the fruits of Christendom, but not the root. They, they, so let me give you an example. We want justice, and we care deeply about justice, but we don't want the judge, right? We want, um, we want love, but we don't want truth, right? So we're, we're kind of, it's an interesting place, and it's really about tearing down or deconstructing the second culture, about transgressing those sacred taboos and, and social norms that have guided Christendom um, and it's kind of like a parasite in that sense. It exists uh, in reaction to the second culture. Charles Taylor, a Catholic sociologist, has a great book that I don't recommend any of you read because it's 900 pages called A Secular Age. And he describes this, uh, this, this shift from Christendom to authenticity. Really, it's the casting off of external authority and the conformity to transcendent values and virtues. And, and the shift is from conformity to those things to choice. Now, I choose my destiny, right? It's all about self-expression and self-fulfillment and about, in the words of our kind of pop culture philosophers, you do you, right? That's the dominant ethic and kind of just the air that we breathe. And here's what Taylor says, explaining this age of authenticity. I mean, the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her or their own way of realizing our humanity, and that it's important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to a conformity with a model, and here's the word, imposed on us or oppressing us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. And this is the, this is the movement that's picked up steam in the last couple of 
decades really um, has really picked up steam because of technology, because of increasing secularization, because of prosperity, right? The prosperity of post-World War II has really kind of accelerated this individualistic mindset. It's about me and mine, not so much about we and ours, right? And so we experience this in a lot of ways. But there's been three basic shifts um, that have been pointed out that are especially felt for white middle-class religious people, right? And so this is where I want to kind of focus here more specifically on uh, some of our experiences maybe here. Uh, There's been three shifts. One, uh, we've been moved from majority to minority status, right? Majority to minority status. For the first time in American history, Protestant Christians are, are no longer the dominant religious group, right? We've seen the rise of what we call nuns, Uh, from a demographic standpoint, uh, particularly younger millennials who are no longer identifying with any particular religious tradition. This is kind of the, I'm spiritual but not religious kind of person, right? And so with the rise of that, we've seen uh, Protestant uh, kind of evangelical Christianity taken from majority status to minority status. Uh, We've moved from the center, many of us feel like we've moved from the center of power to the fringes of power. I mean, think about the history of America in particular and all the major institutions from politics to uh, universities and hospital systems to think about the elite uh, educational systems, Yale, Harvard, Princeton, all started by Christians, right? Like, so center of power, center of influence, center of kind of public discourse, Um, now that's begun to change. And what's happening is not so much that you can't have a faith, it's just that it's got to be private. It's just something you can't share out in public for fear of being called a bigot or narrow-minded or a misogynist or whatever other labels people want to use for Christians. And the last one is that uh, Christianity's moved from respected to dangerous. There was a book recently released called Good Faith, and in this book, Gabe, uh, Gabe Lyons and some other people went around and they surveyed Americans and they said, when you think of Christians, what's the, what are the two words that come to mind? Right? It's this kind of brand awareness if you're in marketing. What kind of brand uh, awareness do we have of Christians in the world? Right? And you feel this if you're a, fo- if you're a follower of Jesus. Right? Um, you feel this in your workplace. You feel this in conversations. You feel this tension rise up Sunday morning on your way to church when you stop off at the barista to get a coffee and somebody says, what are you doing today? And it's like you're doing that mental calculus of do I tell them I'm going to church, but but then there's all these people around and they're going to think I'm weird. And maybe not so much in Indianapolis, but if you've ever lived in Seattle or San Francisco uh, or Miami, you know this is kind of the pressure that you're feeling. Um, And here's the two words that, that they were most commonly responded. Irrelevant and extreme. Irrelevant has no relevance to my daily life in extreme. It's actually posing a social threat. It is dangerous to human flourishing. Now, again, this shift has been felt, I think, most profoundly for boomers, right? Um, And and here's the thing. It's not just this inevitable slow decline from, like, you know, the 17th century when, like, everybody went to church to to now and like the big secular boogeyman is all of a sudden just kind of taken over. It it works in more of like a boom and bust economy. Um, So Rodney Stark in his uh, book, Churching of America, again, another sociologist, he's followed and studied uh, religious attendance patterns. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but uh, back in the 18th century, America was not a Christian nation. It was not, um, there was actually the low tide of religious attendance, church attendance. So it wasn't like everybody went to church in the 18th century, even in the South, which we call the Bible Belt. I mean, it was a lawless crazy place where like very few people actually went to church. So the low tide of church attendance was the 18th, 17th, 18th century. 
You had the Great Awakenings. You had some things that happened that spurred on a lot of what we experience here when you look around in our community and you see Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches and uh, American uh, Methodist Episcopal churches. I mean, all of these came really back in the, the early 20th century. And Indianapolis was called 100 years ago the city of churches because there were so many new churches being started. All of that kind of peaked post-World War II. And think about it, it makes sense, right? The high tide of religious attendance was when some of you boomers were children, right? Because coming out of World War II, think about it, so much trauma, right? There was just a spiritual hunger, and and there was kind of a return to God, at least for a short period of time. Then, again, everybody loses their minds in the 60s and 70s. We call that the age of anxiety. (laughs) And and, And things have continued to kind of seemingly go off the rails, but... The question many of, ourselves, many of us find us asking ourselves is, what happened? Like, how did it seem to come so quickly? There's an interesting um, framework for this, the Overton Window of Cultural Influence. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it, it helps explain some of the things that have happened and, and some of the ways this has been accelerating. Again, don't think of this as like a bunch of people in a room in a conspiracy. We're just not that smart, okay? But this, these are the things that have kind of conspired together to create the moment that we're in. So you have a new idea, be it politics or gender or sexuality or uh, economics, right? Everything starts, and it's unthinkable. Like there, I mean, just think about uh, social media. Like for some of you who grew up 60 or 70 years ago, I mean, this is Huxley's brave new world. You would have never imagined the world in which we find ourselves today. So it starts as unthinkable. Then it becomes radical, right? Um, we think about a lot of this stuff that was happening with protests and, and sit-ins in the 60s and 70s. Then it becomes acceptable, then it becomes sensible, then it becomes popular, then it becomes policy, and then it becomes history. And that is happening in every area of life, and it is happening so rapidly with technology, with prosperity, with this hyper-individualism and consumerism that we find ourselves in. It's just accelerated, and within a matter of a couple decades, we now find ourselves in a world that many of us don't recognize, a world that makes no sense to us that maybe our children or our grandchildren are living in. And for those of us that are younger, up 38, some, many of you are in your 20s, this is just the world in which we've lived where Christianity has been on the decline ever since we can remember. Like, I didn't grow up in church, and that was never like a thing for me. But there's a couple of responses that Christians have had to these changes. And, and I would argue that many of these are rooted not in faith, but in fear. They're rooted in fear, they're rooted in anxiety, and a nostalgia that longs for the return of the 1950s and 60s a world that's not coming back. One response is rage, right? Out of fear, we rage, right? And, and this can be violent or this can be passive-aggressive, right? But there is a, a violence, a, a, a coercion, particularly in the realm of politics, right? And that's why there's so many appeals to go back to the 50s and 60s, right? The time when things were good, when we were in power, when we enjoyed certain privileges, right? And so we reach in the absence of faith and the absence of a a vision firmly rooted in God's promises, we grasp after things like political power. We think if we can just get the right strong man or strong woman in Washington, then we can turn back the clock, right? And we, 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 we utilize weapons of the flesh to fight spiritual battles, but it's rooted in fear. For some of us, it's not rage, it's retreat, I see this in books like Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, where it's like, you know what, let's all become monks, 
and let's all move out to the desert. Let's buy a property out in the Sahara Desert somewhere, uh, you know, out in Arizona somewhere, and let's get a shotgun, and let's get a Bible, and let's just wait for God to smoke this whole place, right, in some kind of a dystopian Kirk Cameron left-behind vision of the future of the world, right? And if you don't know what that means, good for you. That means you didn't grow up in the 80s, okay? But it's just this chicken little, the sky is falling, and let's just withdraw, let's separate ourselves because, uh, you know, uh, everybody's the Antichrist, and we need to avoid them at all costs, and let's create our little Christian subcultures and our Christian coffee. Like when I was in college, there was a coffee shop right off the campus at the University of Kentucky that was called Holy Grounds. You know, it's like this kind of weird stuff that we do to create alternative Christian communities because we're scared of the world around us. The last thing, which has actually been very popular, particularly here in Indianapolis, is not rage or retreat, but relevance. Let's try to meet the culture on their terms, right? Um, so we see this in like the boomer movement in the 80s and 90s with what I'll call contemporary church, contemporary relevant church, right? So you have non-denominationals and let's roll out this fog machines and let's get the lights and let's do MTV in church and let's strip the Baptist off the church name and, uh, and let's, let's look exactly like the culture. Let's use the culture to reach the culture, right? If we can just have cool, slick forms of marketing and communication and now the buzzword with like missional and emerging churches is let's have authentic community. You know, let's like get in homes and let's do this and that'll be the way that we'll really reach people I mean, like, all of us are implicated. We all kind of do this, and we think if we can just unlock the, the relevance code, the problem is with the church, a lot of people would say, is we just have bad PR. If we'll just do a better job marketing the church, and we'll remove some of the offensive things about Christianity, because Christianity feels so, ugh, so archaic, right? It's just like, oh, some of these views on sexuality, some of these views on money, some of these views on community and on the human person are just so outdated. And so if we can just adjust and tweak and modify and subtract some things, then we'll see the world come in. And what ends up happening in the relevance model is we compromise. Compromise. We syncretize, right? And we end up getting colonized. Right? There's a lot of talk about colonization right now. The most colonized group in the world is the church. We allow this third culture and all of its deconstructive tendencies to co-opt a vision for human flourishing. And we find ourselves compromising to the degree that what we call church really bears no semblance to historical Christianity. I mean, like, how many of my friends, I'm, again, in my late 30s, how many of my friends, in an effort to reach culture and be relevant, I mean, like, don't go to church anymore. Most of my friends don't go to church anymore. I'm a pastor. That's problematic. That's an awkward, you know, like dinner conversation. And it's the world in which we live. Mark Sayers, who's a cultural critic, calls these relevance churches disappearing flash mob churches. They're going away, right? And the flash mob idea is that we gather and rally a group of people based on affinity and social networking. We get a bunch of people that share the same preferences together. He says, uh, it's like a vision for the future of the church that's the city of Bonn. It's clean, artistic, hipster with lots of flat white coffee um, options. But the reality is um, there's, there's going to be a group of 60 to 70 to 80% of these people that turn over every year. There's no resilience. There's no commitment. There's no loyalty. And increasingly, there's no church. And you can look around our neighborhood to see how that's happened in the past couple generations. These church buildings all over the city that used to be bastions, of gospel movement, of kingdom vitality, are museums, relics of the past. 
with a bunch of 60 and 70, say a bunch, a handful of 60 and 70 and 80 year olds clinging to a vision of the past. That's the bad news, right? The world has changed. Is there good news? And that's what we kind of want to step into here today. Is there good news? I think that there is. What I'm trying to name for us is a reality that all of us are trying to negotiate. All of us are trying to figure out what to do, right? And all of us are failing, right? It's not like the younger generation's figured it out and the older generation hasn't or vice versa. We're all trying to figure this out together. And here's the thing I want you to walk away with today, hopefully a sense of hopefulness, is there is good news. With all of these changes, I believe that God is establishing a remnant, right? Like, I believe there is good news for us. And here's the good news, that change can open up possibilities for new beginnings. Change is not the end. It is not a death. It is a, it is a kind of death, but it's not an ultimate death. It is an opportunity for rebirth. In the words of some of my favorite 90s theologians, Semisonic, um, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Okay, and like none of you know that song, okay, except my fellow Gen Xers, right? Every new beginning comes from some other beginnings and look it up, okay? It's actually a song that he was, uh, side note, he was writing about uh, his wife being pregnant. So that'll blow some of your minds uh, in a recent interview. But anyways, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end. So we don't step towards rage. We don't uh, retreat. We don't move towards relevance as our solution. What we want to embrace is this vision here in Jeremiah 29, I believe, of resilience. Resilience. Becoming a creative minority. Now, get this word. I didn't invent this term. This is a word that comes from British historian Arnold Toynbee. Toynbee, talking about the rise and fall of civilizations, he said every civilization, no matter how great, has a, has a rise cycle and has a decline cycle. And the only way a civilization can avoid extinction is if there is a creative minority that rises up to chart out a new future. This uh, idea of Toynbee was picked up by Pope Benedict XVI in a fantastic talk that he gave in Europe about 12 years ago on kind of the rise and fall of, of Christian faith in, in that context, very much ahead of America in terms of secularization and the age of authenticity. And then it was popularized by Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in a, a series of lectures he gave just a few years ago. He was the, uh, kind of the chief over all the rabbis in uh, London. And here's what he had to say about creative minority. He borrowing this from Benedict and Toynbee. To become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world so we don't retreat, while staying true to your faith. We don't compromise. Seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are part. And he said, man, like the Jews have been doing this for centuries. If you want to read a great book about that, Thomas Cahill's book, The Gifts of the Jews, right? They've been doing this for centuries. Now it is our turn as Christians to learn what it means to be a creative minority. And he said that is the future of faith. It is a forward-looking, not a backward-looking faith. We look forward to the future with the confidence of all that God's done in the past, and we chart a new way of being in the world. Let me define a creative minority for you, and this will, again, set us up for the series that we have coming here this fall. I believe that a cultural, a creative minority is a group of people practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. A group of people practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. There is a way to flourish. 
in the midst of opposition. There's a theme that we see in this passage here in Jeremiah that is one of the dominant themes of Scripture. It's that God's people are exiles, right? That's who this letter is addressed to. Jeremiah in chapter 29, again, going back to the text, verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This theme of exile starts in the garden when Adam and Eve are exiled because of their sin, and it continues through. There's, there's all kinds of exilic literature in the Bible. You've got the book of Daniel, which we preached on last week. You've got Ezra. You've got Nehemiah. You've got Jeremiah. Uh, you've got Isaiah. I mean, all these books speak to the idea of the people of God being resident aliens. That's essentially what it means to be an exile, is to be a sort of refugee for the kingdom of God, living among the kingdoms of the world, in the world, but not of the world, as the New Testament would say. And the New Testament writers pick up this theme, and that's actually how they address the people of God, not as a cultural majority, but as a cultural minority. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Peter, who walked with Jesus and lived with Jesus, says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect or chosen exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, not accidentally, but on purpose, the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the holiness or the set-apartness of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, not in spite of your exile, but in the midst of your exile. God has a purpose to renew and restore his people. So let's look just quickly at some of the characteristics of this community. Now, if you know anything about this this situation here, Babylon is in the Jewish mind. Jeremiah, the prophet, is writing to a decimated group of people, right, for whom the world has just experienced a a tectonic shift. I mean, Babylon in the Bible is not just a geographic place. It is a metaphor. It is an archetype, if you want to call it that, for violence, for arrogance, for hostile opposition to Yahweh. It is the opposite of what it means to flourish for a Jew would be Babylon, right? And they are taken out because of their disobedience, because they forget God. If you want to summarize the Old Testament in like four words, here it is, right? Forget God, right? There's forgetfulness, there is exile, there is judgment, and there is return, right? That is the cycle and the pattern of the book of Judges, of the Exodus, of all these books here in this kind of prophetic literature. They forget God. They get politically and economically and spiritually corrupted. God exiles them. He sends pagan nations to discipline his people, to judge them, but then he brings them back, right? And this is the situation that they find themselves in. They're on, literally on the banks of Babylon, hanging out in a religious ghetto, wondering what should we do. And here's the crazy thing about the book of Jeremiah. There are false prophets in those days just like there are false prophets right now. Some of the false prophets were saying, separate yourselves, right? Don't defile yourselves. Don't go into Babylon. You will be destroyed. Some of the prophets were saying, no, they had this sense of triumphalism. God's going to destroy and wipe out the Babylonians. Just wait and watch. It's going to be two or three years. There was this kind of militancy and a movement of people who thought that God would come and destroy the Babylonians. You know how long they were in exile? 70 years. What Jeremiah is saying is don't do that. Don't rage. Don't retreat. 
don't try to be relevant. Don't assimilate, right? Because that's what they would do. That's how they assimilated people in, is they would take men, like we see this in the story of Daniel, and they would bring them and they would transport the cultural elites into Babylon. They would strip them of their cultural identity, their commitment to Yahweh, their commitment to the Torah and to a Torah way of life, which was a way of life. It was not just a doctrinal statement. I mean, this, it was a way of life. And they would immerse them in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And then within a couple generations, they would be completely assimilated in. And he says, don't do that. Don't compromise. Be a creative minority. What do we see here with a creative minority? A couple things. We'll begin to wrap up and cast some vision for your imagination. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. First thing we see in a creative minority is hope, right? Hope. Not cynicism, not despair, not people freaking out. What am I going to do? hope. God says, you are my people. I have given you an identity. You are called by my name. You are the people of Israel. You are the covenant ones who I am fulfilling my promises. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have been their God, and I will be your God. Do not despair. I have actually sent you on purpose into this exile for the explicit mission of living out a vocation among these Babylonians. I have given you a job. I have sent you here to renew you and then to use you as agents of transformation among the Babylonians. So God says, don't freak out. You're God's people. You have been sent. You are not abandoned. God has not forgotten you. You don't need to grasp for political power. Settle down, right? Like, put your hope in me. Put your hope in my sovereignty. I'm the God who transcends all geopolitical realities in the world. I'm not a God that can be contained to a local deity, which is how most of the gods were in those days, tribes with their deities. He said, no, I'm the Lord over heaven and earth. I'm the Lord of history. I've got this. I've got you. We see not only hopefulness, but creativity, right? He says, settle down right? Build houses. Call the architects, right? Don't be an arsonist just deconstructing and burning things down. Be an architect. Be a builder, right? Like renovate homes, build homes, get busy producing civilization, build institutions, right? Build businesses, create new ways of being in the world. Like live your life, settle down, build, multiply life in a culture of death. You want to know how you're going to outlast your neighbors who are pursuing a a, a way of violence that is completely at odds with God? Just be faithful. Settle down. And don't just think about yourself. Think about your children and your grandchildren. Worry more about what you're for than what you're against. Easy to be against the world. But what are we for? What are we building? Right? Right? 
I love Isaiah, right? We, we will be called, the Spirit of the Lord is upon us to preach the good news of the kingdom, right? We will be called the, the oaks of righteousness, right? We, we will be called the repairers of the breaches, the gaps, right? God says, I will raise you up to be builders of a new way of being in the world. It's going to require a ton of imagination, a ton of creativity, because this isn't about left or right, This isn't about nationalism or globalization or localism. This is about the kingdom of God. Third thing we see is healing. We should be a community of healing, right? He says, work for their welfare, for in their welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare there is the word shalom. It's peace. And not just the absence of conflict, right? A full vision for holistic, comprehensive, flourishing in every direction, every domain, every industry, every neighborhood, right? It is full physical, spiritual, economic, social, relational, psychological wholeness. That is what the word righteousness means in the Bible. It is not just a private morality that has to do with me and God. He's saying it should spill out into every single domain of culture. We should be a place of healing. And here's the crazy thing. He ties our welfare to the welfare of the city. Like, you see what he's saying? If you are a kind of person that would say, you know, let's just step back and watch the world burn. What he would say to us is, if the, if the city goes to hell, so does your soul. In its welfare, you will find yours. As it flourishes, you will flourish. And as you flourish, it will flourish. So see those as symbiotic, polarity, interdependent relationships. Pursue the welfare of the city. And then finally, he he talks about dependence, right? Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find yours. Cannot do it without God's presence and his power. And if you've ever been involved in trying to bring healing to impoverished communities, to broken systems, to broken institutions. It takes about five minutes for you to realize you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) And if God doesn't show up, like, that's just otherwise called parenting, right? You start out parenting one child, and you think you're an expert on everything, and you're going to do all the things your parents didn't do, and then you end up, hypothetically speaking, having four kids, and you realize at 12, 10, 9, and 6, you have no idea what you're doing, and the only thing you can do is just go into their bedroom after they fall asleep with all the crazy that happens in the day and lay your hands on them and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Will you just show up and do something? That's what it's like to work for justice in the world. That's what it's like to give your life. It's to give yourself to a life of desperate intercessory prayer, saying, God, we need your presence. We need your power. And as Moses said to God in Exodus, we will not go forward without you. We can't. We don't have what it takes to fix all of this crazy. Now, let me just close with some imagination. What could it look like for us to be this kind of community. I believe this is a paradigm for us as God's people that God has given to encourage us. And we see this not just here. We see this in Ezekiel, right? Like that book you were probably doing in your devotions this morning. I mean, we see this in all kinds of places in the Bible, this call to be a creative minority. And here's the thing. For many of us, again, if you are white and you are middle class, this is a new reality for you. But I have news for you globally and historically This is not new for our brothers and sisters. This is the way the church has lived for as long as it's been the church. 
This is the reality for many of our brothers and sisters right now in Jakarta, right? And in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? And in all kinds of places around the world. And in our own city, right? Like, this has been the paradigm for Christians who are minorities in our city since Indianapolis uh, became a city just a couple hundred years ago, right? I mean, African Americans in our city had to be resilient like this to survive the Klan, which estimates tell us at one point there were three or 400,000 Klan members in our city. We were the headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan in the country, south side of Indianapolis, for decades. How do you survive? I don't know. Let's ask our African-American brothers and sisters. The, the Asian church, right, which has been so resilient in the midst of persecution. The Persian church, which has experienced more growth in the last decade than in the last century. The fastest growing churches, as a matter of fact, in Indianapolis are not Caucasian Anglo churches. They are minority churches. The fastest growing church that I know of right now in the city of Indianapolis is the Burmese church. Refugees coming to our country, facing opposition, but they are exploding, and you'll never hear about it on the news, or you'll never hear about it in most churches on Sunday morning. I think of the early church, man. Like, how do you overturn the Caesar? Who would have thought that Jesus as Lord would have ever supplanted, if you were living in those days, would have ever supplanted Caesar as Lord. I mean, that was a subversive, like just totally underdog story. And yet God supernaturally worked to bring about renewal. I think of Hannah Moore in the 18th century, and I could give lots of examples, who was an author and a playwright who worked among the poor and worked with Wilberforce, worked with Granville Sharp, worked with Bailby Porteous to bring about the abolition of slavery through her literature and through her plays, fought for justice with this group of people, a creative minority. One of my favorite stories, and I'll close with this, is the story of Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon, um, if you've read the book or heard, watched the movie To End All Wars, you'd be familiar with this story. Ernest Gordon was a British officer who was captured during World War II, and he became a Japanese prisoner of war in one of the most difficult and ruthless labor camps, um, the one that was building the Burma Siam Rail. And they, and they were trying to build a rail line uh, that would uh, allow them to invade India. And so they subjected um, folks to this ruthless treatment. It was barbaric. 80,000 people died, roughly 300 people, 400 people for every mile of track that was laid. The conditions there were unbelievably dehumanizing and oppressive. Uh, I mean, no human being could survive this camp very long. And Ernest himself was at the point of despair, ulcers covering his body, his, basically his body just beginning to eat itself alive, emaciated, d- destroyed, decimated, and there was, a, there was a turning point in the camp one day when um, at the end of a day, a long day, they were counting the tools and the Japanese officers discovered that one of the tools was missing. And so they went to the camp and they said, who did it? Who stole this tool? Who lost the tool? And nobody said anything. And all of a sudden, they just broke out in this crazy fanatical uh, thing. And they said, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. And so they, as they raised their uh, guns to begin to execute the prisoners in the camp, one man stood up and said, I did it. This man was innocent. He actually didn't do it. And at the end of the day, they discovered that the tool wasn't actually missing, but they beat this man alive. They beat him to death right in front of all the other prisoners. And and Ernest Gordon, as he recounts this, he said, the the thought that, that came into my mind watching this act of substitution, this is a real story, watching this act of substitution was the, was the words of Jesus. He was kind of piecing together from his childhood. He was not an active believer at the time. 
greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. And he said literally everything began to shift. There was a solidarity. People crossing racial and ethnic and socioeconomic boundaries, caring for each other, burying one another, treating each other's wounds, loving each other. Matter of fact, I think it was two Scots nursed him back to health. And, and he said some crazy things started coming. They started a Bible study. And this Bible study led to what he called a jungle university. Jungle university, let me describe it. Whoever had expertise in a certain field would teach a course to other students. The university soon offered courses in history, philosophy, economics, mathematics, natural sciences, and at least nine languages. Professors wrote their own textbooks as they went along on whatever scraps of paper they could find. Prisoners with artistic talent salvaged bits of charcoal from cooking fires, pounded rocks to make their own paints, and managed to produce enough artwork to mount an exhibition. Two botanists oversaw a garden specializing in medicinal plants. I don't know what they were doing there, but um, a few prisoners had smuggled in string instruments. Other musicians ca uh, carved woodwinds out of bamboo, and before long, an orchestra formed. One man blessed with a photographic memory could write out complete scores of symphonies from Beethoven, and soon the camp was staging orchestras, ballets, and musical theater performances. Gordon himself would go on after he was released from this labor camp to become a Presbyterian minister and the dean of chapel at Princeton. And he wrote this in the memoir, and here's what he says in reflecting back on his time. Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death. Selfishness, hatred, Envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith, on the other hand, were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. These were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. True, there was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life of fellowship. Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming rain. Let me throw the Overton window back up on the screen and ask you a question to consider as we go to communion. What if the crazy idea that God is trying to advance in this moment is that what we're living in is a rebirth and a new beginning and a renewal, not the death and the end of the church and the death of Christianity? What would change for us if we actually believed that? If we believe that just like in the Old Testament, the deepest darkness prepares us for the brightest light, that Christians have been their best historically, not in the center of power, but on the fringes, not when they're the majority, but when they're the minority, not when they're well-respected, but when they're viewed with ill repute. What if this is an opportunity for the church to experience renewal, for us to become a creative minority, for us to listen and heed the words of the prophets that teach us that after every exile, there is a return. After every destruction, the ruins can be rebuilt. And after every crisis, there is a rebirth. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that you have not abandoned us. You know, the world is changing and it will continue to change. You never change. You are the same today and yesterday and forever. So God, I pray that that would be our confidence, that we would entrust ourselves to your sovereignty, to your goodness, to your vision for us to flourish even in the midst of opposition. Help us to not be afraid, to not live a life of fear, but one that is rooted and anchored in faith and hope and love, understanding that love has the, the possibility to change the world, and it has. Love it's came to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and has changed everything about us. And I pray, God, that we would live in that confidence in our own exile, seeking to be an agent of transformation and reconciliation, extending to others the very transformation we've experienced in our own souls and living with a confident hope in the future that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to come and receive communion if you're a follower of Jesus, right? If by faith in the living Jesus, you are trusting in what Jesus has done for you, his life, death, and resurrection, making a way for you to experience peace, shalom, true human flourishing, right? In every aspect of your person, mind, body, soul, being changed and transformed by the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus